Thanks, Marcus. Hello, everyone. It's great to have our Grandpa Marcus and Grandpa Tony down there with us this last week. <laughs> I said to our guys, you know, to have two grandpas so on fire for Jesus and for the church gives us great hope. Great hope. Yeah, so uh, that's what we have been doing since about July. I felt God move us down there. So we based in Cape Town now, actually. And we hop back to Maritzburg to uh, touch base there once a month. And uh, I'm sure Mark has given you all the figures. Last night we were in KZN preaching at a few different churches there where they're holding equips. They're holding equips in Umtunzini, Richards Bay, Belito. Uh, Durban North, Durban Central, Amsam Toti, Scottborough, Port Chepston, Hillcrest, Waterfall, uh, Maritzburg, Dundee, Freyhead, Newcastle, the townships in those areas. There's more than, I think there's 35 in KZN that are happening at the moment. And it's, uh, isn't it amazing to see, hey? And you Gauteng pastors, a whole ton of you have made the trek down there to KZN. And uh, what a joy. What a joy, it's like a new day, hey? And 7.50, praise the Lord. Even if it was motivated by the politicians, it doesn't matter, we're still gonna meet, hey? And uh, I do wanna say a, th- a huge thank you for the, the generosity that Gauteng showed to the KZN region over our looting. Uh, I'm not too certain how many Pantechnicans made it way down to KZN, but a lot of them did and finances that were given in, and uh, made a massive impact, not just in the churches, but uh, to the world, looking on to see the church in action like that. So uh, bless you, thank you for that. It was quite a thing, hey, with the looting going on there. Did a a guarding stint with my son. I had a knob carry, he had a knife. (laughs) And there were semi-automatics all around us. I felt like quite the vicar wandering in there with my knob carry. But, uh. So, uh, when does this end? But half past 12. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you uh, wait on God, I mean, most of you are preachers with something to preach. A couple of days ago, just before the Cape Equip, I woke up in the morning in my devotion and I. I felt God gave me a word, and I thought, this is amazing. This is not just for my devotion. This is for tonight. So this morning, I got up very excited, thinking the Lord was going to do the same thing. So I flick open 2 Kings, and it's the story of Jehu, commissioned by Elisha to go and cut off all the heads of everybody who belonged to Ahab. So I thought, Lord, it's in the next chapter. Well, the next chapter, he wasn't finished. He was cutting off more heads. He's putting piles of heads outside of city gates. Thought, hey, Lord Jesus, what's going on in Joburg? Anyway, I'm leaving my quiet town behind. Leaving my quiet town behind. I'm not feeding you out of my quiet town this morning. Uh, I'm going to revisit uh, what the Lord showed me a couple of days ago. Uh, Can I pray just to get out of the bloodshed and out of the looting and out of everything else? Father, I pray that This humble little contribution that I bring today will bring life, will bring hope, 
will bring encouragement and clarity of vision. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the ministry is a hazardous place. I think it's the most hazardous occupation known to man. Because if you're doing it properly, you're getting really close up to people and you're making yourself vulnerable. If you're going to be a father, not just a benefactor. If you're going to be a mother, not just a counselor. If you're going to be transparent, if you're going to be open to people, if you're going to build relationship, genuine relationship, you're allowing them very close. As close as Jesus allowed his disciples to get to him. And if the pattern was there for Jesus, it's there for us. Betrayal, backstabbing, it happens in the ministry. You lead someone to the Lord, you knit them into your church, and then he says to you, I found this great church down the road. And you smile and you wave and you say, God bless you, and you want to kill him. It's just like, you, you, you thought that you like moving in the anointing of Elijah and then all of a sudden, when you hear stuff that people say about you, or rumors that aren't even true, when you, when you pray for somebody and they get healed, <laughs> you think, move over, Benny Hinn, here I come. But, and then you pray for dudes and they die. It's like valleys and mountaintops. That's the ministry. And when it comes from those closest to you, the ones that you've invited in close, it's very, very easy. When those expectations are dashed, when the betrayal comes, when the, when the desertion happens, when you look at your church, I mean, just coming in on a Sunday morning, I don't know about you preachers, but my eye sees the empty seats, not the full ones. I don't know why that is. Sometimes I don't even see <laughs> my dearest friends because I'm looking at the blank seat next to them. Why does that happen? I don't know why that happens, but it's, like, it's a hazardous place, the ministry. Around every corner, there is the possibility that you are going to get offended, that you are going to get yourself into trouble. And so uh, what I'd like to do this morning is speak into that. And before I do, I'd like to just give an illustration, a biblical illustration, and uh, I'll try my best uh, with the limited uh, skill that I have here. If you want to trap an animal, what they would do in the Old Testament is that they would put a box or a net or some sort of a trap and they would put a stick under it like this, which was called a bait stick. I mean, you, you've all tried to catch a mouse like this, eh? Or a bird like this. Uh, depending on how big the box is, I suppose, depends on how big the animal is you can catch. You bait the thing, and then the animal comes, and as it takes the bait, the theory is the box falls on its head. Now, this stick in the Greek is called a scandalon. The verb, which is associated with the taking of that bait, is scandalizo. It's, it's, to, it's to take the bait and allow the box to fall on your head. That's the literal rendering of that word. Now, you'll find it often in the NIV. It's called a stumbling 
uh, uh, tripping over uh, or offense, offended. But, but that word scandalon literally means, the pictorial language of it is that you've taken the bait and the box is on your head. Now, when we're in ministry, I'm suggesting to you that the box is hovering. And when the desertion comes, and if you take the bait, boom, box is on your head. You're offended. And the metaphor I'd like to draw with you today is that what ministry is like when you're inside this box? What ministry is like? Now listen, you're talking to an expert here. I'm generally a very positive guy, but I promise in my term of ministry, I haven't been in ministry as long as our grandpa here, but I've been in ministry a long time. Since 1985, no, no, sorry, 1988, I started preaching. So often it's happened where the box has fallen on my head and I've been offended. I've been scandalized. I'll tell you what life is like there. Firstly, it's pretty dark in here. And you see things darkly. You see people darkly. If Marcus has offended me, and he gets up here and he preaches better than Jesus, do you know that it's going to mean nothing to me? I'm looking, what an idiot. Look, look what shirt he's wearing. In fact, look what shoes he's wearing. <laughs> Him and I bought shoes at the exact same spot. That's why I can say that. If you've been offended, it colors the way you see things. Colors the way you see your ministry. It colors the way you see other people. Colors the way you see the Lord. Colors the way you see your future. Because you, you see things darkly. And listen, it can happen to, it does happen to all of us. I'll tell you something else about this place. It's lonely in here. Good people, don't climb in there with you. <laughs> So you're there by yourself. It's what the devil wants you to do. Hide away. Mope about. And if you're seeing things darkly and you alone, your ministry is very ineffective. An offended person becomes increasingly ineffective. Tell you something else about being inside this box. You look ugly like this, man. I don't care how ugly your face normally is. It's better than looking at someone in a box. If someone's offended, it's like the glory of Jesus. It's like the wonder of your salvation. It's like the flicker of light that is inside of you is being closed out. In Luke chapter 8, I think it is, when Jesus is finished telling the parable of the sower and the seed, this is what he says. He says, the good soil is the heart that receives the word and produces a fruit, is fruitful. That's, he's basically saying, that's who you are, my disciples. You're designed to be fruitful. The very next verse, he says, who lights a candle and sticks it under a bush? In other words, you fruitful Christian, who would take a fruitful Christian and shove him in a box? The devil would. And you would, when you allow yourself to be scandalized, when you allow the box to fall on your head. And so, 
Some of you might be saying, Grant, fortunately, I'm far more positive than you. That thing doesn't happen to me. I think that even the greatest man born of woman, that's what Jesus called John the baptizer. The greatest man born of woman was offended. I think he ended his ministry with his head in the box. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. So last night I was preaching at a particular church in Maritzburg that was hosting an equip. I preached it a couple of times in the day and I, I got to this particular church. Now that church is like in the city that I've spent 30 years ministering in. So pretty much I knew almost everybody there. So uh, when we came to a ministry time at the end, I said, you know, if I have caused any of you an offense... <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I didn't even say that to my own church. I just in this particular group, I said, have you been offended? In fact, if I have caused you an offense, I, I do, and they did, <laughs> a guy comes up to me. Now, he was one of our leaders. And he looks at me and he says, thank you so much for preaching this tonight, Grant. So I said, absolute pleasure. So he says, because you've offended me for 25 years. <laughs> You know, the box was busy sitting right on my head, right there. I was tired. I just preached three times in a row. And you've offended me for 25 years. I forgive you, <laughs> he says. Now listen, if it can happen to John the Baptist, it can happen to you. I've been offended many times. Heck, I've been offended by my leaders. I've been offended by my family. I've even been offended by myself. In fact, I'm very offended by myself, often. Let's go have a look how John handled it. Luke 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him about these things. Let's get some context here. We know John said some rather direct things to King Herod, wound him in jail. Maybe he didn't appreciate the fact that he had married his brother's wife. And so, just think about this. This is the wild man. This is the guy with a hairstyle that's absolutely out of control. This is a guy who's running on the plane, swimming in the Jordan. He's like a caged animal. Imagine that. He's grown up in the wilds. Now he's in prison. Somehow his captors were allowing visitation rights. And his disciples pull in and tell him about these things. Well, we haven't got time to read the whole chapter, but let me tell you the things that they were telling him. The story before this is Jesus going into the village of Nain. So as it says, as he gets to the gates, a funeral procession is coming out of Nain. Now in those days, the grieving family would be in front and the coffin would be behind. And so he walks up to the procession, Jesus does, and he sees the grieving widow and so he says to her, don't cry. I mean, who says that at a, at a funeral? People are supposed to cry at a funeral. He walks, and this is the mother. Don't cry. He walks past the mother. And then horror of horrors, he puts his hand into the coffin. Now for a Jewish boy, 
That wasn't cool. That, that's worse than eating pigs. It's, he's putting his hand into a dead person, touching the dead person. He's becoming unclean. If there'd been any religious person there, they would have been seriously offended by that. But he puts his hand into the coffin, and then he talks to the corpse. And the boy sits up, gives him to his mom. It's like incredible. And so it says the entire region was talking about him. And the two disciples of John go running back to the prison, and they tell him all these things. Now, you would think that John would say, yes, I told you so. I told you, this is what I've been preaching about. But you know what he says? Is that all? I am telling you, there is a box on this guy's head. Properly. Just look what he says here. He misses the wonder. He misses the wonder of the resurrection. He misses the wonder of, of new life, of a revival happening. He misses the wonder that the whole village is now talking about the kingdom of God. He misses that entirely. And calling the two of them, he says, verse 19, sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? It's like, is this all you can do? Why was he offended? Because what had John been preaching? Judgment was coming. Vengeance of God. Repent because you're in big, big trouble. Now, was he prophetically correct? He was. Just his timing was a little bit out. I think his expectation was Jesus can deliver me from Rome, deliver us from Rome. He's going to come riding in on his horse. Because we prophesy in part. Last night at one of the equips, there was a prophetic time. And my son-in-law was there. And a very well-meaning team guy prophesied over my son-in-law, trying to say good things. But he said, you know, when people see you, you like prickly, you like standoffish, you like... And then he told him some nice things. <laughs> so this morning I wake up and boop on my phone is the voice audio of the prophetic word. This is like sending it to your father-in-law. <laughs> Does he agree? <laughs> we prophesy in part, is my point. <laughs> because I think the good things he had to say were true, just a little clumsy, that's all. John was seeing in part. And I believe he was expecting the kingdom to come rushing in. And so, just raising a dead teenage boy, is that all you're going to do? Jesus replies gently to him in verse 22. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, in case he hadn't noticed. The lame are walking. Oh, and don't forget to tell him the lepers are being cured. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. And then look what he says here. And the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. What's he quoting there? He's quoting Isaiah, talking about the year of Jubilee, which is being ushered in by the Messiah. So he was saying to John, you are absolutely right, my boy. I am the Messiah. The good news has been preached to the poor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Very gentle to John. And when the disciples had gone, this is what Jesus says. Blessed is anyone who does not get scandalized, that's the word, by me. So what's he saying? He's saying John is stumbling. 
is being offended. And just in case you think I'm exegeting that incorrectly, he goes on to carry on talking about John. He says, what did you go out into the desert to see? A guy in flowing robes? No, 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 you find them in palaces. And then Jesus says, this is the one who was written about that went before the Messiah preparing the way. This is the one coming in the spirit of Elijah. So what's he saying? And then he says, and of those born of women, there's no one greater than this one. But he's been scandalized. If John can be scandalized, so can you. The chapter ends with another illustration, actually. Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. And as he sits down at the, to recline there, a woman of ill repute, maybe a prostitute, comes in, goes behind Jesus and starts to make quite a performance there. She's crying so much, there's so much liquid that she can wash his feet. Uses her hair, which she was probably using to seduce people, to wipe his feet. Takes this expensive ointment. Now, the wonder of what's going on. This woman accepted by the king of kings. The Messiah in your house. But what's Simon doing? He's like parking off in a corner, muttering to himself. There's, there's some box on that dude's head. Jesus turns very gently to him and reveals to him that he's come for such as these. Very gently. Listen, if Jesus is in someone's house and he can get offended, so can you. And what that offense does is it makes you ineffective ministry-wise. Isolates you. Taints your views. And listen, if you're going to live long and finish strong, I've got a father who's turning 80 next month. Still on staff with us. Quite a tough guy. And uh, he's never been a pastor, but he's been in the ministry for like 40 years been doing mission work and loves the Lord, just written a book. I look at my dad and I think the number of times he's been offended, the number of times people have done wicked things to him and yet he's still crazy in love with Jesus. Somehow that box didn't stay long. If I could title what I'm saying is get the box off quickly, quickly. So how do you handle it? Now, Clearly, offense has got to do with your attitude. It's got to do with the condition of your heart. But it's also got to do, an attitude is how you see things. The dictionary definition explains attitude. How you see things and how you tend to respond to them. That's your attitude. Now, when Peter is writing about these things, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered. So Peter's now talking about the suffering of Christ. The betrayal of Christ. The desertion of Christ. The abuse of Christ. He says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude as that of Christ. What is the bazooka that kicks that box away? What is your weapon? It's an attitude that's lined up with that of Christ. You say, God, well, that's a bit straightforward. The big issue is how do you do that? How do you get this? 
alignment with Christ? Well, I think it starts by you understanding and having a sober assessment of what degree of offense you're sitting under. Because very often you're offended and you don't even know it. Very often it happens slowly. The box like slowly comes on your head. Do you know like, you know those dimmable lights? If you dim a light really, 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 really slowly, your eyes get accustomed to the light, don't they? And you think, no, this is normal. I can live with this. Often offense happens like that. It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. Slowly the box the scandal on it doesn't happen just like a bird trap. It just slowly moves out of place. Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer to the Hebrews shows us the instrument which God has given to act as a mirror to look straight into our attitudes, to look straight into our heart. This is what Hebrews 4.12 says. The word of God is alive and it's active. It's like a searching light. It's alive and active. It's not just passive lying there. Where's the word of God in your life? Some of you say it's, it's like there on the bedside table next to my pillow. True, it's a good place to keep it. But it's alive and it's active. Sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating, the dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. What's this verse saying? It's saying is when the word comes up against you, you see your attitude for what it is. You say, God, yeah, we know that. But here's my question. So where is the word in your life? I do think it's in your devotions. I do think it's in the word that you have memorized. I do think it is in the word that you listen in a preach like this. But I tell you where I think it is most alive and most active. If you're married to a believer, it's there hidden in her heart. The Bible does judge my attitudes, and sometimes in my own devotions, it does spring up and convict me, but far more effective in my life has been when it comes in the form of a little redhead that has been married to me for 29 years. And she's very polite, those of you who know her, and so she doesn't tell me, you know, your attitude sucks, go pull yourself together. She just generally says, Grant, I think it's time that you had a quiet time. <laughs> That's code language for your attitude sucks. There's a box on your head. Take the Bible, the active word of God, and let it show you and expose your hypocrisy, boy. Go have a quiet time. <laughs> it is vital that we have relationships like that. If you're married, that should be your spouse. If you're not married, you young guys, you should have people in your life like that who can say to you, hey boy, it's time for a quiet time. I can check a box. Sometimes you can't see the box from the inside. It takes other people to say, look, you're looking ugly today, boy. I can't see Jesus anymore. I can just see the offense. It's like coming out of your ears. It's coming out of your nose. It's coming out of your attitude. And so when the word reveals that to you, then what do you do? 
How does the alignment come? If you know that's the word of God and that's your attitude that sucks. How does that alignment happen? Now, some people would preach, you just got to pull yourself toward yourself, boy. How many times have you said that to your kids? Pull yourself together. <laughs> but, 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 but pull yourself together, boy. As if God isn't even in the picture. It's all up to you. Sort yourself out. And then there are other people on the other extreme who preach, no, man, you're sanctified by the Spirit. Just ask the Lord, you'll clean your heart up. No, but why now, after 10 years, do you still have that attitude? Well, God's taking his time. You know, I don't know what it is. It's God's problem. I mean, I told him my heart is here. Just come and sort it out. But he's not doing it. It's like his fault. Now, there's elements of truth in both. But the way God brings alignment is that he calls something out of us and then he miraculously intervenes. We'll look at a couple of scriptures in a moment. This is, let me just give you the summary. Our role is when we see that we're out of alignment is to repent. Very easily when we've got a box on our head, we don't think of repentance. We think of accusation. Because there's a reason for that box. It's betrayal. It's pain. It's another person's fault. I am fully justified in sitting inside this box. But your attitude is out of alignment with that of Christ, which means you need to repent. And I think confess. Confession. If you confess your sins one to another, you're faith, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. John was writing that to believers, not to unbelievers. Some people say you just repent once when you get saved. <laughs> if that was the case, Jesus wouldn't have given us the Lord's Prayer, including in our devotion to him. Lord, forgive us our sins. So repentance and confession, and then what that does, it positions you to receive the gift. I'm going to read a scripture to you just now that shows that God will give you the attitude of Christ. He'll give it to you, but he'll give it to those who are aligned with him through repentance and confession. Not those just running off on their own hill, trying to do their own thing anyway. So let's have a look at the, listen, it's two parts. Ephesians 4, says, For you were taught with regard to your former way of life. That way of thinking. The way you self-justify, the way you accuse, the way you process things carnally. Your former way of life. To put off your old self. What is that language for? That language is repentance language. Which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. And so attitudes like this. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. God made a mistake when he made me. God's going to use somebody else. He couldn't possibly have chosen me. Listen, Ephesians 2 says, that you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance that you might walk in them. Difficult to walk in those works of God when you've got a box on your head. Where do you know where to put your foot? Where do you know to even look at the horizon? And so he says, put it off. Another verse is... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, our weapons are not the weapons of this world, but they are mighty 
to the tearing down of strongholds. I met a guy at the Equip in Cape Town who came to me like wide-eyed. He says, look, I used to be in your church in Maritzburg. Now I'm in this far-off place. I found this church, and all they talk about all the time is demons. We had a three-hour meeting the other day when he was calling demons out of people in the church. So I said, oh, my word, run from that church. Go to a church that preaches about Jesus, not about the devil. That's the best place to start. So what's a stronghold? Can it have been put there by demonic influence? Absolutely, but what is the stronghold? He says, your weapons are mighty to the tearing down of strongholds, comma, every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So what's a stronghold? It's an argument. Because he's writing to the Corinthians. These are Christians. An argument that a Christian has against God. In other words, his attitude is not in alignment with that of Christ. He said, God, I don't have attitudes against God. <laughs> it's very easy when a box is on your head to have an attitude that's not in alignment with God. And if it's a sustaining one, it can become what's, what Paul calls a stronghold, which is a fortified way of thinking. We think about it regularly, often. It's our go-to reaction. It's our knee-jerk response. Why? It's become fortified. It's become our instinctive response. It's become who we are. That's a stronghold. In other words, it's an area of your life that isn't surrendered to Christ. The analogy in the Old Testament that Paul is borrowing from is a village that's being attacked. In the old days, you would protect your village with a stone wall or some sort of a wall. And when the enemy came in, your last bastion of defense was the stronghold. You'd run and you'd hide in there. You'd climb up a tower, you'd chuck rocks over or shoot arrows down. Sometimes you could read in the Old Testament in the early books of the Old Testament, people trying to burn people out of their strongholds. So Paul's using that imagery, and this is what he's implying. When Jesus saved you, he came in over the walls of your life. He came in like a flood. And you raised up the surrender flag, and you said, Jesus is now king. He's now captain of my life. He's breached my wall. My whole life is his. This is his domain. But I have a fortified spot in my world that he is not in. So he can have everything. He can have my family. He can have my future. He can take me to heaven, but he's not going to touch my money. Fortified way of thinking. It's a stronghold. If it's a repeated place that you hide away and you say, I can get God into every area of my life. He's not coming into this area. That's a stronghold. Maybe it's your sexuality. God can have my business, he can have my family, I'm gonna come to church, I'm gonna be involved, but don't let his word come into my sex life. Stays out of there. And it could be because of pain, it could be because of some sort of an offense that's happened. How do these things happen? But this is what Paul is saying. No matter how that stronghold got there, you have weaponry that demolishes arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Now, what is that? Come out in the name of Jesus. You can shout at yourself as long as you like, but And who knows? If you have a demon, maybe it'll run. But the weaponry he's talking about, when you are arguing against God, when you have a defensive position against God, the weaponry God has given you is repentance and confession. Because when you confess your sin, he comes in like a flood. The light of God comes and exposes 
and the strength of that stronghold is demolished. Now, our responsibility, I remember Dudley preaching many, many years ago that there are some things God doesn't do. And one of the things he doesn't do is repent for you. And so once you've repented, what then? Well, in Romans 15, this is what happens. For everything that was written in the past, Paul says, was written to teach us so that through the endurance that is taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He says, I know this Christian walk requires endurance. I know this Christian walk is tough. Just like Jesus suffered, we suffer. And it is littered with the potential to be offended. But we call to endure. And this is what he says. He says, may the God who gives us endurance, God helps us through, give you the same attitude as that of Christ. What's that verse saying? God gives you the attitude of Christ. Who does he give it to? Those who endure, those who have gone through the tough times, repenting, lining up themselves with God. God says, okay, now I'm going to change you. David understood that, didn't he? When he had botched up, he had been offended by the prophet who had come to expose him. He had been offended by God. He had offended himself. He had been offended by the death of his son. And he comes before God when he pens Psalm 51 and he says, God created me a clean heart. He knew that after he had repented and after he had, you know, wept before God, that God was fully able to come and give him a lobotomy in his attitude. Wash me whiter than snow. Give me a clean heart. Renew my mind. We're not going to go very far in the ministry with a box on our heads. And that offense is lurking. You know, you can have, you can wake up in the morning, like I, I woke up yesterday morning in Cape Town. I'm right there living at Sea Point, the most magnificent day. Where I am living, the sun rises and it sets over this same view. It is beautiful. It's like glass. I said to my wife, oh, if I could just get my boat out now and go, but I had to catch an airplane. What a beautiful day. I, I had my mates with me. We were ministering, I kicking my heels, jumping on an airplane. And then, you've offended me for 25 years. <laughs> Didn't you hear what I've been preaching? <laughs> Preach to yourself, preacher. <laughs> it can happen like this, friends. Are we going to minister full of joy? And live long in the land. And, and walk out what God's prepared in advance for us to do. We can't do it with a box on our heads. We repent and we ask God to bring our attitude right. I wonder if we could stand together.